This is ContraZoom. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and today's episode is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. On today's episode, we are continuing our celebration of cinema from around the world. Two episodes ago on part one, we looked at Japanese cinema, specifically live-action films, from legendary directors like Akira Kurosawa, Yasujiro Ozu, and Hirokazu Koreeda, and movies like Godzilla, Ringu, and Seven Samurai. Japan also has an incredibly long and rich tradition in animation. The first full-length animated movie was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, produced by Disney and released in 1937. Japan produced their first full-length animated movie just eight years later with the World War II propaganda film Momotaro Sacred Sailors. Since then, they've become leaders in the industry, making some of the most beloved and influential animated movies of all time. Once again, joining me on this journey as my far more experienced co-pilot is Naomi Wada-Platt who previously appeared on episode 130, Imaginative, and 141, celebrating Japanese cinema live action. She is a YouTuber that specializes in cultural videos in both English and Japanese. Thank you so much for joining me again today, Naomi. Thank you so much for having me again. I was really looking forward to this episode. Well, good. Now, we talked in the last episode about how it must have been difficult to talk about all the great movies that Japan has given the world without mentioning their contribution to animation. Are you relieved we can talk about that today? Finally, yes. <laughs> Good. I'm glad you are excited. I'm excited too. But I gotta know, growing up, what were your entrance points? Was it Studio Ghibli, like a lot of the world, or were, you, were there other ones too that you were fascinated by? So, in Japan, you basically grow up um, watching Ghibli. I remember watching it on TV with my family members, and I remember going to theaters to watch uh, Spirited Away, Sendo Tsuhiro no Kamikakushi. So I grew up with that. But I got into like television animation when I was in elementary school, like when I was a teenager. So ever since I like animation seemed my thing. So I'm really excited to talk about things that I've been passionate for over decades. So yeah. Well, that's good. When you're in Japan, is it sort of similar to here in North America where like you have Saturday morning cartoons? Do they do they do that over there? It's a thing in Japan. Um Pretty much every weekday, you have evening time allocated for animation, and on weekends in the morning, it's for like kids. And every day um, around nighttime, there more mature animation for adults or young adults. So it's definitely a thing. It's yeah, it's similar to North America. Yeah. That's good. That's good to hear. Uh, now, I think it's, you know, best we kind of start this conversation at the peak of the mountain. And that, of course, is the aforementioned Studio Ghibli. Uh, the studio was started in 1985 by directors Hayao Miyazaki and Iso Takahara, who are already very established in their fields as they joined up with producer Toshio Suzuki. Over the course of their 35-year history, they've released 22 movies directed by seven different people. Of course, it all comes back to two of the founders who have produced the most profound impact on the studio. Miyazaki has directed nine, while Takahata, who sadly passed away in 2018 at the age of 82, directed five of the releases. We'll start with the figurehead of the company, Miyazaki, who has become almost an unofficial mascot of the company, whose image and personality are as well known as directors not known for, their, for the animation medium. He has retired several times, each time swearing that this time is for real. He is once again returning from his final retirement to work on the upcoming release, How Do You Live? Miyazaki's work often is more fantastical than his cohorts, as he populates his films with unique imaginary creatures, and overall, his films are more flights of fancy. I'll start out by asking, what sets apart Ghibli's work from other studios, and what makes Miyazaki unique to you? It's just his imagination and dedication to his narratives. 
it's just it's so dynamic and he's so dedicated creating each and every film and their world and it's so meticulous and you just get sucked into it and you just realize even though those films are separate entities it's creation of Miyazaki and once you get the gist of his essence you are just hooked on it. I found for me I I've I've now watched uh four of his films five <laughs> but four official Ghibli ones that he's able to work in this uh this style that is you know geared more for children but he doesn't treat them as children he he very much treats them like any other movie going audience i find that very unique he does not talk down to to the people that are paying to basically watch his films and i think that's absolutely fascinating because i think you know if if you're talking about a director that's making cute and cuddly creatures and you know everyone can fly and everyone has magic powers and stuff like that. You, you're very much expecting a very childish film, but the opposite is true. There, there's some heavier themes going on behind the scenes in treating the children as, as people that can control their own destiny and things like that. So I think that was quite fascinating for me to sort of learn as I was watching his movies. That is very true. Yeah. He, he just presents the world as it is not, you know, watering it down or like you said um talking it down to like kids that is so very true like previously i had watched uh the wind rises that's that's the only miyazaki film i had seen prior to doing preparation for this episode but i i've since watched uh, my neighbor totoro porco rosso spirited away and then also uh lupin the third uh his his very first movie they directed that was pre-studio ghibli and especially with with totoro you know that's that's one that's probably the most famous, you know, you see the plushies everywhere of, of Totoro and, and his mm-hmm. little friends and things like that. So it's obviously super well known. And it's, you know, about these two young girls trying to, I, like, I, there there isn't even really much of a plot. It's just sort of discovering that there is this forest troll that lives next to the house where they live. And, and that's basically the, the gist of the plot. There really isn't a lot going on there. But one thing I was reading yeah. about afterwards is, you know, you've got these two very young children that are basically running around the countryside of Japan as they're trying to find their dad and stuff like that. And, and later one of the girls gets separated and, and things like that. And all throughout the different scenes, you see shrines on the side of the road. And they mentioned it once at the beginning that, that people pray to them and stuff like that. But I was reading afterwards that they're specifically shrines that look over children. So it's a, a subconscious way of letting the audience know that the children were never in any real danger. And they're not. Like the whole movie, they encounter some mm-hmm. some interesting creatures and things like that, but they're never in any sort of danger. And, you know, that was something where I was watching with having know nothing about i'm like oh is is this cat bus gonna steal them away or is oh, totoro no. and his trolls gonna do something or are they gonna put a curse on them but no everything is so safe and so it's almost like upends your expectations because you're watching and it's just like i don't believe this something bad is about to happen maybe that's <laughs> you know north american film sensibility where everything goes wrong sort of thing but i found that very yeah. fascinating oh that's very true. But there are actually some theories of um, Totoro um, that it's about um, Sasuke, the big sister, like, actually dying. Because, like, at one point, um, their shadows kind of disappear. So people are like, oh, it's like the world of death. Like, they're in afterlife, blah, blah, blah. So there are some elements that people can look into it and kind of go haywire. But, yeah. But I agree with the fact, like, that you are expecting like the kids are safe and 
like no harm's done, but you get this like kind of wondrous um fantasy related like oh what's gonna happen next and i think he yeah like he just nails the balance of being kind of curious and having this sense of like i don't know what's gonna happen this unknownness and then kind of blends that into this reality which is not really reality but it's he's really good at balancing that whole element Mm-hmm. And I think the one I was most surprised with was Spirited Away. That was, I, I just fell head over heels for that one. The way he was sort of building this entire world of this quasi afterlife, but also not really. It's also just where all the fantastic creatures sort of gather. And I don't know if it's supposed to be that way, but there was some creatures that look sort of similar to Totoro in Spirited Away. So I, yeah, it, it just makes me think that there's some sort of connection there, spiritual connection, if you will. <laughs> Oh, that's a good one. But no, people look into that and like they have their own conspiracy theories of, oh, this um, creature's from Totoro, this creature's from this movie, so it's so connected, blah, blah, blah. I love the conversations like that. Do you have any personal favorite Miyazakis? Spirited Away, Sento Tihiro no Kamigakushi. The music is just phenomenal. Um, I When I watched it in theater in Japan, I think I was I don't know, 10 or something. And I was taking piano lessons and I begged my teachers to um, practice all the um, soundtrack uh, from Spirit Away. So I, I actually can play um, the soundtrack, the music, the scores. It's, I love the music and artwork is great. And Chihiro, like, you know, she was my age at that time. So, and I've experienced um, going through like uh, moving and, you know, leaving your old school and going into new schools. So it's just, I I I grew up with that thing, and in high school, um, my high school did a school trip to Taiwan, and we went to the city called Kyuhung, which Miyazaki based on uh, the city model of um, Spirited Away. So I was just like, I'm in the world of Spirited Away. My fangirl moment has peaked. Like this is the moment. <laughs> so it's it's. It's a special movie for me. Nice. I I noticed, you know, with all the Ghibli films, but specifically with the Miyazaki ones, there seems to be such an intense focus on food as well, where they make yes. it look as realistic as possible, as appetizing as possible. And I don't think I've seen that, you know, other than maybe something like Ratatouille, where food is so essential to the plot. You don't really get that with most animated films from anywhere in this world, this sort of care of detail, you know, having the steam coming up from the dishes and like seeing Mm -hmm. water and and things like that, the way it all sort of glistens off of the food. And that really, you know, I'm not going to lie. Almost every time I watched a a Ghibli film, I was like, Oh, I'm kind of hungry right now. (laughs) I'm sure Ghibli like was doing that um, intentionally and their website, um, in Japan, that's like, oh, how to recreate um, these dishes that you've seen, you see um, in Ghibli films. So I should send you that link. Oh, please do. Yeah, that, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, I think I also want to touch on a little bit about the artwork style as well. You know, there there's a, mm-hmm. a bit of a visual similarity between all the films by the different directors that I have seen, but I think they're all still slightly unique in their own way. And for Miyazaki, it almost reminds me of like Monet paintings where you've got this like beautiful still backdrop, the way the clouds sort of hang in the sky and the hills and all that sort of stuff. And then it's just the action in the foreground that really is animated. And I think it adds a real nice stillness to it, to this beauty 
And it also, you really can tell the care that they put into actually animate it. You know, uh, probably, you know, Pixar is like just the easy one to kind of go back to where their movies now look just so flawless. And that's great. That's mm-hmm. a great style of animation where they're able to make it almost photorealistic, but there isn't any sort of real life behind it. And you actually feel the <laughs> the life and the emotion that goes into to Miyazaki's films. I don't know how hands-on he is with the actual animation process, I believe he is. Um, I, I don't know if you're able to sort of speak to, to the artwork style or not. I just know that um, he's just been drawing the whole time. And um, he's done many um, television animation as well. And when I go back to those um, shows, like I, like I see the continuation of the art style and the animation that he did, television animation series that he did, it's mostly towards um, kids. So sometimes the backgrounds are not as detailed as um, Studio Ghibli films. But like he's known for just keep on drawing, keep on drawing, and really quick and just really being good at it. <laughs> That's all the information that I could get from um, like websites talking about his techniques and everything. But he was influenced by um impressionism so Mm. you're right about monet kind of like reminding monet and everything yeah yeah you can absolutely see that sort of uh style that's very clear in his work now i suppose we should move on to the other big name from studio ghibli and that's iso takahara whose work is much more grounded in reality and i would almost classify his films as ones that don't need to be animated but he chooses to do so to highlight the the beauty of everyday life if Miyazaki is sort of Ghibli's sense of wonder and excitement, would you call Takahata the soul of the company? Yeah, like he, whenever people talk about Miyazaki and Takahata, people say, you know, Takahata is known for his um, realistic depiction, like realism, like grounded, and Miyazaki is really um, romantic and uh, fantasy. And I definitely do see your point. Um and the fact that he's so realistic, yet he made those animation films kind of tell his passion and love for the medium called animation. Yeah, I, I've seen I've seen three of his films, and obviously, I think the big one that was real one of the real launchpads for the company is, is Grave of the Fireflies, and this is a movie that for the longest time. I've basically been told this is one of the saddest movies ever. Sad, so it's so so sad. I'll never watch it again. It's just so sad, and and so because of that, I I tried to shy away from learning what it's about. You know, I had some idea. You know, mm-hmm. when you say a sad movie that takes place in Japan, I automatically assume it has something to do with the war, and of course it does. And so it was, mm-hmm. it was nice to to go into that movie basically as blind as possible. And while I agree, it was very sad, but I I don't think it was maybe the saddest movie I've ever seen. But uh, it's funny. I was uh, I was recounting the the plot to my wife. And I'm just explaining mm-hmm. to her. She's like, oh, my God, that sounds so sad. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the, this is why I mean the type of movie that like Grave of the Fireflies did not need to be animated. You could make that movie live action very easily. Uh, and I could definitely see something like that being made. But the fact that it is animated, it almost takes away some of the sadness and help inject some optimism into it, even though this is a situation where there is almost no optimism present. That's an interesting point. Like for me, someone who grew up 
with animation and loving them, I've never questioned like, oh, this doesn't like, why does this have to be animated? Because it's just the medium that people choose, right? Some people choose music, some people choose um, literature, some people choose, I don't know, spoken words to convey their emotions or visions. So for me, like hearing that is kind of making me learn more about the differences between animation and live action. But the reason that this movie works well and it's so emotional is because one of the aspects is animation because when you see live action, you kind of get surrounded by the whole notion of like, oh, this is filming, like people made this set. And people said, okay, action, like this is starting right now. But animation, it's just, it's whole continuation. It's creation of people, but there's no clear end. Oh, obviously from there's a start and there's an end, but you get to do whatever within that continuation with animation. So for me, Grim and Fireflies is just, for me, it's the saddest movie because it's animation and you just see all the emotions and all the facial features and backgrounds that people created together. And it's just sad. And another reason that it is the saddest movie for me is because it's set in COVID, which is my hometown and the station um, where the brothers, this, uh, I don't want to spoil it, but um, it's at is, the station that I used every day when I was commuting in high school and so to, I actually haven't watched that movie till I moved to um, Toronto so I watched it with my friends and I was crying the whole time because it's like oh my god this happened in COVID way back when and I took that I used the station every single day and it's not the station's completely renovated and different but this happened like something as tragic as this happened it's in the town that I know so much that I was just like bawling my ass out and now I'm like you know remembering the film I'm kind of getting emotional right now so thank you for um, <laughs> trying to make me cry sorry but <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah it, for me it's the saddest movie for that reason I find some of the the films, you know, specifically Grave of the Fireflies and maybe Porco Rosso being another one, where the politics of the studio, I find, are interesting because you can't really pin anything down on it. You know, with Grave of the Fireflies, yeah. it's taking place during the war and, and this young brother and sister, their father is in the Japanese Navy and they talk about that and and the son looks up to his dad to, to go out there and, and to defeat the enemy and obviously what we kind of know of, you know, Japan's involvement with some of the other countries, it gets a little bit muddied and then at the end of it, the, the end of the movie, the, the armistice happens that the unconditional surrender and the brother is is absolutely devastated not just because of the idea that he probably lost his father which later he, he finds out he probably did but that japan lost it's sort of this infallible country to him in the sense of, of pride and patriotism whereas the other citizens in the bank seem pretty uh nonplussed about the situation at all they don't even really care it doesn't seem to really register so like trying to unlock what the politics of the film and what it all means i found 
you know, was a bit interesting because I think it's it's purposely kept kind of muddied so that way they're both making a statement and at the same time not really making a statement. I found that sort of similar with Paco mm-hmm. Rosso as well because, you know, uh, he's fighting against fascists and, and not wanting to join the military even though they're kind of perceived as the good guys. So all of it was just found very interesting. Is that something that's sort of discussed around the, the Ghibli movies? So um, later in career, um, his career, Miyazaki went um, anti-nuclear um, power plant or just anti-nuclear weapon. Um, but until then, he definitely had some messages that he wanted to convey. But in Japan, it's kind of um, taboo to talk about politics um, through your work, unless you are a professor or just a writer on those topics. Like, if you're a musician and start speaking like, oh, like I'm against war, you will get criticized really harshly. Things are changing a bit, but in Miyazaki's time, um, it definitely wasn't. So I assume that's the reason that he tried to make it as non-confrontational. But now the studio's just like, yep, anti-nuclear war, anti-nuclear weapons and everything. Interesting. Now, I also find it kind of interesting when you look up... Uh the list of, of the movies that the studio produce and by Rotten Tomato scores, Takahata has the top three films out of the entire company with, with Grave of the Fireflies only yesterday and the tale of Princess Kaguya. I found that very interesting considering the fact that uh, Miyazaki's works are, are definitely the more well-known ones. Grave of the Fireflies is obviously well-known, especially in cinephile circles. But if I'm looking up a list of, you know, uh, best uh, Studio Ghibli films only yesterday I never really saw come up and you know looking at some of the scores or like people that have seen all of them it always ranked very highly so I, I was like all right I guess I'll check that one out compared to maybe some of the other ones I didn't end up watching Howl's Moving Castle or I didn't watch uh, Princess Mononoke or stuff like that so I watched only yesterday and I am so glad I did because that one that one really did hit me hard as well probably uh, hit me a little bit harder than Grave of the Fireflies and you know this is really? a, a, a story just in the way the the story is told obviously the subject matter of grave of the fireflies is much more intense and and, you know the moments in are very intense and and sad but the way only yesterday hit me personally i found very interesting because you know it's about the story of a young girl growing up and you know i'm i'm not a girl i i didn't have any sisters (laughs) she was the youngest sibling i was the oldest sibling uh she you know wanted to go move out to the countryside i couldn't be any further away from from this character yet for some reason it's almost like when you get super specific about a character's descriptions and backgrounds and stories it almost becomes more universal in that sense because you can kind of be like well i'm not quite like that but i can find something where i relate to where i had a similar experience of being embarrassed or wanting something and i couldn't get it when i was a child and things like that so just because of all that it just really spoke to me for some reason oh that's so great have you seen this one no, unfortunately. I uh, realized that I haven't seen that many of um, Takahata's work, and now I'm like, oh, Lord, I, I need to fix that. <laughs> <laughs> interesting, but yeah. it's definitely on my list. <laughs> so so this one I found very interesting because it takes place in two timelines, one where it's present day and she's a young woman. It almost is a bit like an Ozu movie where people are asking her when she's going to get married. Uh, so <laughs> it reminded me a bit of, of you know, um, late spring. Uh but then she also uh, is claiming that her uh, fifth grade self is with her on this journey. So it keeps flashing back to her. But what I liked about the artwork is every time it would go to a flashback, the whole screen would not be animated. It would be like 
whatever the characters are and like the, you know, if they're in their house, you know, part of the room would be animated, but then the rest of it would just sort of uh, drift into blank white space. And so I, I really liked it because it basically felt like a memory. Whereas, you know, if you, if you, mm-hmm. if I was to be like, Hey, can you tell me that time when you did this as a kid? And you'd be like, Oh yes, I remember very intently what the chair I was sitting in, what the food I was eating, what the smell was or something like that. But if you were to, you know, be like, all right, now describe the rest of the atmosphere. You'd be like, I don't really remember. It was, I think it was, Mm -hmm. sunny I think it was nice out I don't really remember that sort of stuff but you know so I just really appreciate that the things that you can remember the most are very intense and vivid and then the rest of it all just sort of fades away into the background so I really like that sort of art style and then of course when it was the present day everything was was fully and perfectly animated Mm -hmm. that shows Takahata's um, realistic like how he is known why he's known as um, being realistic and you know pursuing reality that makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I guess, are there any other non Miyazaki or Takahata Ghibli works that you want to highlight? For me, the only other ones I've seen are when Marnie was there, which was, I'm hopefully not going to butcher this too much, directed by Hiromasa Yonabayashi and The Red Turtle, which was a co-production between Dutch studio Wild Bunch and Studio Ghibli, where the Japanese studio handled the animation process, making it technically not a fully fledged Studio Ghibli picture. For me, as a child of Miyazaki, I I love Ghibli. I love Studio Ghibli, but it's like it's not Miyazaki. But um, Marnie, um, I heard that it's cute and it's on my list. But every single time, I'm like, should I watch it? It's not Miyazaki, uh, <laughs> and I feel bad. But like, I should give a chance because I grew up with Ghibli and I believe in the studio and. Everyone who's still working there, you know, deserve their respect and spots and everything. So I really need to start watching non-Yazaki and non-Takata movies. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I it's one that I'm like, I'm so-so on. The Red Turtle is really beautiful. It's mostly, it's almost completely a silent film. So it's very interesting. It doesn't feel like the other ones, even though it looks like a, a Studio Ghibli film. But it definitely mm-hmm. uh, has set itself apart. Yeah. Uh, so I guess, you know, other than that sort of stuff, what are your sort of like overall thoughts on, on the way Studio Ghibli is maybe, uh, perceived in Japan compared to maybe the rest of the world or like what's exactly its place over there? It's just something that you grow up with. It's just, it's almost like a part of your life because, um, in Japan, when you have a television in your house, um, you get a free um, cable channel, and um, one of those channels have um, weekly, like movie night. I mean, hours. So, like Friday and Saturdays, they show something, and they do Ghibli like every year. Um, August specifically, they show Hotaru no Haka, Grave of Fireflies, because it's the end of the war. Blah blah blah. But um, sometimes they do Spirit Away and everything. So. If you have a television in Japan, you watch them. You grew up watching them. So it's just something that's become part of your life. And now with the rise of, you know, social medias and everything, um, there's this actually a phenomenon. Um, I forgot the title for a second. In Japan, in Japanese, it's called uh, Tenku no Shiro Rapita. The English title, Laputa Castle in the Sky. Um, so when that's airing wherever oh, whenever um people go on twitter and at this scene um 
the main characters say this um, old chant or spell, Barusu, and with them, people tweet Barusu. And I think they broke the Twitter server way back when. <laughs> and it's like, it's a meme. It's just part of everyday life. And you just grow up Ghibli. Like, you see, you know, Totoro plushies everywhere. And I remember, like, singing um, Totoro's theme song um, back in elementary school. I'm pretty sure I can play that in piano and recorder. It's just, it's, yeah, it's part of your life in Japan. The theme song is the end where it's like, Totoro, Totoro. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that one. I love that so much. Even though I can't watch Totoro, um, there's a scene that traumatized me as a kid um, involving um, corn and goat or sheep. Um, that traumatized me when I was really young and I can't watch Totoro, but it's the yeah. eye. But I, I love the song and I love <laughs> Totoro and all those siblings. I mean, yeah, the characters. Would you say that Totoro is uh, the most well-known or the most beloved one in Japan? Absolutely, Totoro's the one. Totoro's the face of Ghibli Studio, the theme um, sequence, and the face of um, Totoro Museum Mitaka in Mitaka, Tokyo. Um, if you are ever in Japan, please go to um, Ghibli Museum. Um, apparently, it's amazing. I haven't been, but they have the replica of um, the house from Totoro and everything, and apparently, it's really cute. And I actually had a friend who lived in Mitaka. And saw Miyazaki Hayao like a, like several times, and she didn't say hi because she was scared of him. But yeah, Mitaka's the spot if you love um, Studio Ghibli. Awesome. Well, yeah, I I would love to go to Japan one day, and if I do, I will have to go and visit that museum. Especially since, like as I was saying before, I barely seen any Studio Ghibli films, but now that I've seen a whole bunch of them, I'm I'm definitely fully on board and and hope to to catch up with the rest of them. Yeah, do it. All right. So I think we need to pivot something deadly serious right now, and that is subs or dubs. I know Studio Ghibli is a favorite of young children who likely don't have the ability to to read subtitles and as such grow up on the dubbed versions of these classic films, but where do you stand on them? I'm 100% against dubs. I am sorry. No dubs. Subs all the way for me what about you are we gonna like are we gonna have a war here no you know uh i prefer uh subtitles always i would rather watch yes i would rather watch any movie in its native language the way it it Mm -hmm. was intended by the, the the creators behind it um so if at all possible i will i will not watch a dubbed version uh i i just know that like here especially in in canada i assure in in the US as well, but like I know my cousins were were big fans of, of of Totoro growing up and obviously they were not, you know, listening to it in in Japanese and reading the, the English subtitles when they were like three and four years old. So I, I know a lot of people in Canada really did grow up with the with the dubbing. And I think and I think they probably try a little harder than maybe some other companies because they usually get some fairly big names to do. I'm always sort of impressed where I'm like, I'm kind yeah. of curious. I'm like, Ooh, what would it be like to, to listen to this movie with, you know, a big Hollywood cast? What is it? Come on, let's go in. I want to see what's on the other side. Where are you going? You shouldn't be here. Get out of here now. What? You've got to get across the river. Go. I'll distract them. 
when I did Netflix party with my friends, um, we watched the uh, Howl's Moving Castle and first thing I said like it has to be in Japanese audio and like we have to have subs. I know that, you know, like you said, um they do bring big names for dubs and sometimes I'm like, Oh, I wanna like listen to Mark Hamill like you know, being playing this character in the Ghibli film, like, oh, that sounds cute. But at the same time, it's like, I just, I just cannot do it. It's like my skin's just, oh, I'm getting goosebumps right now, even thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Well, th- I'm glad, uh, I'm glad you said that uh, because I, I do feel the same way, same way as well. Obviously, it's it's a bit different when you have young children who who possibly can't read uh, and they don't yeah. speak Japanese. That's something a, a bit different but yeah as an adult where i have the ability to choose which one i i am always going to choose the subtitled version all the way Woohoo! <laughs> all right let's uh let's talk about some non-ghibli films we've now basically spent a half an hour talking about just studio ghibli uh, but they are not the only producers of animation in japan a large amount of animated films uh sort of much like seven samurai which was you know inspired by westerns but then went on to inspire just about every other western after that are inspired by science fiction movies and then have gone on to be the inspiration for plenty of other science fiction especially in hollywood you've got classics like ghost in the shell which seems to take as much from Blade Runner as it then later gave to The Matrix and Avatar. Then you have the seminal film Akira from 1988, which is sort of seen as a gateway drug for other cultures to access anime and made the medium something that is not just for kids with its heavy themes and intense violence. It pulls minor influences from stuff like Star Wars, Blade Runner, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and more. But it's fascinating to see what is sense inspired with the likes of Pokemon and Dragon Ball, The Dark Knight, Looper, and Stranger Things. When you have something like Paprika, which Christopher Nolan has had to explain that Inception is an homage and not a direct ripoff for years now, what are your thoughts on some of the more adult and science fiction theme films that have come out in the last few decades? Huge fan of them. Um, Ghost in the Shell holds a special place in my heart. Um, some of the franchise or the series are actually set in Kobe, my hometown. So whenever they talk about like Akashi or Kobe, I was like, oh yeah, I know where that is. And Oshi Mamoru, um, the director of Ghost in the Shell series, does an amazing job creating this whole world that people may be able to imagine, but takes he takes it to the next level. And I just love him. And Kon Satoshi, he, uh, he passed away way too soon. He is a treasure. And it's such a loss to the Japanese animation industry. Um, but I actually just watched it on Paprika today. I only read the original novel and I was like, you know what? I'm fine with this. Um, and now I'm like, you know what? I'm glad that I watched it because it's amazing. And it shows what animation can do. And it breaks your um, imagination. It challenges you this notion of reality. And those um, science fiction kind of dark themed animation show that to you and provides this whole new realm and medium of um, self-expression. So a huge fan. Wow. That's good to hear. Yeah. I, I quite enjoyed Paprika as well. Watching it, you know, at the end of it, I was like, yeah, I, I think I 
kind of got what this movie was about. <laughs> like, I, I can tell you the, the general plot overview, but like some of the, the, the more specific themes and, and stuff it was touching on, it really goes deep with a lot of this stuff. And I, I think I'm forever going to be traumatized by that, like, marching band music. It's like a little too happy. Paprika's uh, music is uh, created by Shin Hirasawa. Um, it was like a well-known kind of, not avant-garde, but he's not like mainstream, mainstream pop music kind of person. So after um, listening to that music and kind of, yeah, I got scared too. And I was like, oh, it's by Hirasawa Shin. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's wacky and everything. Okay, I don't want to listen to it again, like maybe at night alone. But yeah. Yeah. What, what do you think? is the the reason behind there's so many sort of seminal science fiction uh, anime movies. What, what, what specifically about the, those themes and genres do you think really speaks to some of the, the creators in Japan? That is a really good question and a tough one to answer. Ooh, let me think. <laughs> because is it like a, just a general subject that people in Japan are, are fascinated by? Are, are, you know, science fiction films, regardless of where they come from, is that something that is a genre that really interests, you know, people that live in Japan? If you are into anime, you kind of get used to the science fiction parts of um, the medium because, um, like Gundam, um, robotics is, a huge thing and people accept it as a whole new genre and some people may like the genre or not but it's just part of the it's just a crucial pillar of the world of animation and people just accept it at this point like it's there we grew up with that and with the rise of um interest and um, foreign interest in Japanese sci-fi and everything. I think people now realize that they can take it to a different realm and everything. So I think now they are at this point saying like, you know what? We can go back to sci-fi and do something different. We have amazing history of doing um, great shows and um, movies. So I think they're at that point. I, I may be completely off topic, but it's yeah, it's a genre that's been appreciated for sure. But it's just like unconsciously appreciated. Interesting. Now, are there any other, you know, big name films that you kind of want to talk about? I know I was sort of asking about any last minute recommendations and ones that you had mentioned were Summer Wars and, and Jungle Emperor Leo. Are those ones that you have fondness for? Japanese titles, same. Summer Wars, um, directed by Hosoda Mamoru. Hosoda Mamoru is like a well-known director. Um, he's all about family and Summer Wars is just, how do I? I read the novel and I really liked it. And it's really cute. It's about kids going through some things, but it's not just kids. It's adults, too, that they have their own lives. So it's this complexity of human being. I think Hosoda does an amazing job depicting it. And um, Jungle Emperor Leo, Jungle Teikoku Leo, um, that's actually based on comic series, I think it's the same title, by this one of the most popular um, comic artists in Japan, Tezuka Osamu. And because of that, it's like iconic. And I remember, I don't think I watched the full movie, but I remember watching like clips of it when I was young and it was cute. So I liked it. And then I realized that like, oh, Lion King, the Disney one kind of ripped, you know, this movie off. I'm like, 
Oh. Oh, they, okay. Now I need to appreciate it and, like, fight for Jungle Emperor Leo. Interesting. Yeah, I, I know. It's always so shocking when people learn that, like, uh, Kimba the White Lion is is literally uh, Lion King ripped it off, like, shot for shot. <laughs> yeah, like, like, why are you doing it? Ugh. Yeah, I still like Lion King, but it's heartbreaking. <laughs> uh, I won't tell anyone. <laughs> Uh, now, I'm quite passionate about the Oscars. I'm about to kick off a two-month series of episodes covering this year's ceremony. But back in 2002, the second year the Best Animated Feature category was a thing, Spirited Away won the award, making it the only time a film not in English won the top prize. Since then, Howl's Moving Castle, The Wind Rises, The Tale of Princess Kaguya, When Marnie Was There, The Red Turtle, Mirai, have represented Japan at the Oscars. Despite Studio Ghibli having the fourth most total nominations in the history of the category it has unfortunately been dominated by pixar with 10 wins and disney with three with five studios only having one win apiece how do you sort of feel about this the category and the lack of wins from outside of america or even other international studios like cartoon saloon les armatures and ardman have the same amount of combined wins as ghibli i feel offended i'm kidding not really <laughs> <laughs> i mean like for me oscars just like I have my own opinions um, regarding that whole scheme, but like, like as a fan of Japanese animation, I'm like y'all can do it. Like just fix your marketing, like go hard outside of Japan and you can win this. Like you can show the world that we got this kind of thing. So I'm really bitter. <laughs> no, that's fair. And for me, you know, as, as much as I love the Oscars, the, the animated feature is basically the only category where I, I kind of think it's complete BS because the mm-hmm. way the Oscars work is uh, you basically have to be a member of a branch. So the actors vote on the acting awards and the directors vote on the directing awards and stuff like that. And so animators vote on the animation award. And because it, you know, the Oscars is, is an American organization, it means most the employee, most of the voters are American uh, animators, which the biggest studio is Disney Pixar, so most of the the nominee nominating members are employees of those two companies, which you know have won thirteen of I think it's now seventeen or eighteen awards, something like that. So that's why, in my opinion, like I love Pixar; they make some fantastic ones, and a lot of them have been mm-hmm. very deserving. But the fact that mm-hmm. you know there there's almost you know, there's, it seems like there's one token nominee that's not made by an American studio year, whether it's a cartoon saloon, which is, is based in, uh, in, in Ireland, they're sort of the big one or Ardman, which is the, the English studio that makes Wallace and Gromit where it's like, mm-hmm. you get one nominee. It's either a, a Ghibli yeah. or a cartoon saloon, like pick your, take your pick of which one it's going to be. And that's it. And they stand no chance of winning, which is, is very frustrating to me because very often they're doing more cutting edge things and more unique things. I I'd rather watch a, a film that's, you know, not technically perfect. Like some of the, the Pixar ones compared to maybe one that has a little bit more passion. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Well, that's good. Uh, now <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of interested to know how animated films are, are marketed and received in Japan. I know, you know, there's a worldwide audience for them, but are they just as popular as sort of like the Disney and Pixar movies are here or are they more niche? That's a tough question to answer, but, um, okay. So when we are talking about animation films, there are two types of animation films. One 
it's completely original animation films like uh, Hosoda Mamoru, um, Kon Satoshi, or um, Shinkai Makoto, who did um, Your Name, Weathering With You. And the other branch is animation series based on comic series or video games or like actual like TV animation um, series. So for those, um, the latter branch animation movies with um, like original comic series, they've been employing this thing, um, this thing called um, volume zero tactics. So to explain that, um, I was actually in this phenomenon back in high school. Um, so there's a um, series called One Piece um, in Japan. Um, it's Origins is um comic book series, and they have um TV animation series, and that animation series has been going on and on because it's a long um comic series. It's still ongoing, and every year that series comes out with a new movie, and so One Piece um had like a few years of uh, struggling with their uh, movie. Um, they didn't make as much money as they wanted to, so one year they said, you know what, for this year's um, One Piece movie, we are going to give out this um, comic book, like a zero, volume zero comic book to those who come and watch this movie. And it, it was limited. So the volumes are, were limited. Um, so all the fans, including myself, rushed to the theater to get that comic because the comic, that volume, specific volume made for this film was not going to be sold so we all went and it was a huge success so after that all the movies animation movies based off of um animation series or comics they usually employ this tactic and i think demon slayer um the movie that beat um the spirited away um box revenue record in japan last year did the same thing um they came out with the original um comic volume for those who see the movie who go and watch the movie um i'm not saying that demon slayer only was able to be the this monumental record of spirited away but it still played in and um there are actually other films um like animation movie became sorry animation television series became movie and they usually hand out on um, the films, actual film that they use in the film movie. So, and it's all random. So sometimes they get scenes of this completely random, like almost like too dark. You don't get to see what's going on or you get um, films of uh, your favorite character. in. so people go back to theaters to get films that they want. So they've been kind of employing this, unique marketing um, tactic, it's been very, very working in their favor. Wow. That, that's very fascinating to hear. Does this really help yeah. like uh, make these movies like top the box office? And, and maybe how do they sort of compare it to some American films? Like are, are they as popular as American films? Sometimes, yeah. Um, well, the reason that they come up with the... Um, animation movies is because they know that they have fans from the comic series or the um, television series so they're like okay let's make money come on get um, coming <laughs> basically like you know drop your money um, and funny thing is that 
when Avengers Infinity War came out, um, that top you know, pretty much number one in every country, right? Except for Japan, because... It made, like, a trillion dollars. <laughs> yeah. You know, it made that much money. But in Japan, it didn't hit number one because at that time, um, there's this uh, movie based on this animation series called uh, Case Close. It's basically a kid's um, detective kind of story. And that series has been going on. It's ongoing. And... Uh, that movie came out with a sorry that television animation television series came out with a movie um around the same time actually like a few weeks maybe a couple weeks before infinity war hit the um, screen and that movie beat avengers infinity war so japan got shocked too it was like oh my god like our you know animation beat disney like avengers mcu what the hell and, you know, Disney, like, North American fans are like, wait, 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 wait. Infinity War didn't win, like, every country's box office. Like, what the hell? So, it's, it was, like, I was shocked, too. Like, oh, my God. I I used to watch um, this series, Case Closed, but I wasn't expecting the movie to beat Avengers. So, it's like, oh, my God. So it's, it's ja- like, Japanese marketing, like, film marketing is really weird. Like, you never know what hits hard. And the companies are doing their own you know, things like the volume zero tactics to make sure that they attract, you know, many as many audiences as possible. Interesting. Are you able to sort of keep up with a lot of this stuff while you're living here in Canada? Or do you sort of find yourself being like, all right, what did I miss over the last two years? Basically that. Um, I'm not that into animation anymore because um, I don't want to generalize it, but there's some um, xenophobic, misogynistic kind of, politically incorrect um depiction of certain things so i've been kind of away from that thing but um there are some movies um of animation series that i used to watch and want to watch but that means i have to go to um cineplex on young and dundas which is like the worst cineplex um theater in Toronto. i don't know if you will agree with me or not but i hate that theater so it's like, I don't want to go. Um, so I try to like wait for the uh, release, but I, yeah, it's like, I don't want to, I can't keep up with them. Mm. I got to wait. I, I'm personally much more partial to Varsity Cinema. That's my favorite. Me too. <laughs> I love that place. We'll have to, once everything oh. opens back up, we'll have to go and see a movie together then. Yes. All right. The last main subject I sort of want to touch on is sort of similar to the one we talked about in part one, and that's the idea of American films that take place in Japan. Off the top of my head, there were two recent examples, both stop-motion animated films that use the backdrop and legacy of Japan to tell their stories. You have Wes Anderson's 2018 film Isle of Dogs, about a pack of dogs trying to find their way back to their humans in Japan. The Japanese archipelago, 20 years in the future. Canine saturation has reached epidemic proportions. An outbreak of dog flu rips through the city of Megasaki. Mayor Kobayashi issues emergency orders, calling for a hasty quarantine. Trash Island becomes an exiled colony. The Isle of Dogs. In 2016's Leica Studios film Kubo and the Two Strings that blends together traditional Japanese mythology to tell the story of a young boy trying to find out the story of his father. I'd love to hear your thoughts on these movies if you've seen them, ones that I know that also have their own controversies as well. So um, Wes Anderson, 
Isla's dog. Um, I didn't, I, I, I have a thing for, um, non-Japanese people trying to create their own Japan and tell stories with it. So I was like, I, I can't, I can't go watch it and get disappointed. Um, my friend did and told me the plot line. And I, I was glad that I didn't go and watch it. Um, but, in Japan, I think it was well received, and people are like, "Oh my God, Wes Anderson's like talking about Japan, like made a movie based in Japan, like oh my God, that's so cool." So it was well received. So I'm glad for you know those people who like the movie in Japan and for Wes Anderson. I'm cool with the same thing. It's like I I'm not saying that the movie itself is bad, but I've just had horrible experiences before, so I can't really go into watch it. But I remember seeing some tweets about Kubo, and they were like, this is actually a really good film. Like, y'all should go watch it. So, again, this movie was well received in Japan. So, maybe I should just, like, shed my own fear and just go into those films. Yeah, I I, I think both of them are, are slightly flawed movies. I love stop motion. I'm a, I'm a real sucky, sucker for it. Uh, especially oh. the the animation in, in Kubo and the Two Strings is, is absolutely stunning. I like it as my favorite studio um but both of them i feel have their own flaws for for me it's the ending of kubo and the two strings in for for isle of dogs it's just certain parts that don't fully work for me even if it's great overall uh my name is kubo i look after my mother mostly what was father like he was just like you strong and so handsome. Mother. (laughs) I use magic to tell stories. If you must blink, do it now. About epic battles, warriors, and monsters. But I had no idea my stories were actually true. We've been looking for you for so long. They're interesting, you know, and I think the the biggest thing happens to be that the behind the controversies is, is the casting of, of white people in the leads. Like oh, with, yeah. with Kubo, they are playing Japanese people, and the leads are are voiced by Charlize Theron and Matthew McConaughey. Um, and in Isle of Dogs, I can't remember who it is. If it's, I think it's Greta Gerwig who who plays a a young woman who's a student who's white, but plays a student mm-hmm. in Japan and sort of taking over and leading the charge and leading her Japanese classmates and things like that. So that's what I recall as being like the, the bigger controversies between those two films. Yeah. Now after hearing that, I'm like, Ooh, but um, being politically correct and the whole idea of like, okay, if give the role to the person who has the background of the character is not well received in Japan. Um, it's, even a couple of days ago, like there was a whole feud on um, Twitter on the topic of this and people saying like, oh, like if you're an actor, you should be able to play like any roles. So like, why are they limiting? Like, for example, like a transgender woman's role to transgender woman. Like, why are they doing that? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, you know, in my own apartment in Toronto, just like, oh my God, they are not understanding the whole notion of it. So they actually don't even, have, I'm not judging that. I'm not saying it's bad. Um, it's just unfortunate for me because, yeah, it is. It's just, it's like, y- y'all can be mad at those things. Like, we should be representing Asian, I mean, we should be demanding Asian representation. Um, and say Japan's Japan, China's China, Korea's Korea, like, give us the opportunity and do it right. So, it's unfortunate that Japan's not seeing that topic in 
my from my perspective, but I think that's one of the reasons that um, those movies were well received in Japan without having that whole conversation and controversy taking place within that nation. Okay. Now, are there any sort of final, you know, uh, animation films that you want to shout out as ones that your favorites that we didn't get a chance to, to talk about at all? Yes. Miss Hokusai, Sarasubiri, is about daughter of Katsuka Hokusai, one of the most famous ukiyo-e artists. If you have seen that um, artwork of uh, the Mount Fuji in the background and the whole ocean kind of waves kind of going really crazy, that's the guy. Um, this film is about his daughter, who is also an ukiyo-e artist. And for me, um, Japanese animation has this big flaw of um, not understanding female um, as in like anatomically speaking sometimes you know um, female bodies are really off crazy in um, weird Japanese animes and uh, like women's rights kind of thing um, so to see women the way they are in this film was really refreshing and that like I think I watched this film right after watching some of the Shinkai Makoto um, work like Kimi no Nawa, Your Name, which I, I I dislike that guy so much. If you like him, I'm sorry. This is just my opinion. Um, he creates a beautiful world, but he's just a bit too ignorant when it comes to um, gender equality and things um, within his film. So I was like, okay, yeah, I hate Shinkai Makoto. And then I watched Miss Hokusai, and I was like, this is great like I love her and her story is often not told um even in Japan so to get a spotlight for her I was like yes girl you go and the artwork is beautiful too it's almost um a bit ghibli like but it's still beautiful and I like I don't think any of my friends have seen it so yeah if you are into it if you're curious go watch Miss Hokusai I recommend that film to everyone well, that is fantastic. Uh, I think that about wraps up our epic two-part series celebrating Japanese cinema. Naomi, I want to thank you for joining me on the show and sharing so much insight. I hope everyone learned and enjoyed listening to this episode as I did making it with you. If people want to follow your your work, what is the best way to find and follow you? Find me on YouTube. Just search my name, Naomi Plat P-L-A-T-T, and you will see me there. Well, great. I will link to that in the show notes. Stay tuned for next week when we react to the Oscar nominations that come out on March 15th. What movies will be in contention for Best Picture? Let us know what your favorite Japanese animated films are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod, and what other film cultures should we celebrate on future episodes. Send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Make sure to visit ContraZoomPod.com for all your CZP needs. Today's show is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you could rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts, it would be a huge help for us to grow and find new listeners. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.